Since beginning the Permaculture Podcast in 2010, I've lived in the gift economy and asked for your support to produce the show. During the past decade, you've allowed me to share hundreds of interviews with amazing practitioners from all over the world to anyone with an internet connection. Along the way, you've also helped put food on my table, take care of my children, and handle some acute medical needs. Approaching the 10th anniversary of the show, I'm asking for your support again so I can purchase a camera and microphones to record video interviews and permaculture site tours. Together we can add to the bounty of knowledge and share what permaculture looks like in person and on the ground. If you've never donated to the show, now's the time. If you've donated before and continue to see value in my mission to share voices from across the spectrum of permaculture practices and practitioners, please donate again. You can do so online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail to my new address, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. As a thank you to anyone donating $50 or more during this campaign, I'll send you a USB drive with every currently available interview, monologue, and discussion from the first decade of the Permaculture Podcast. That includes the first show from 2010 through to the 10th anniversary episode out on October 10th of this year. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Permaculture practices begin in the landscape, with the training of a permaculture design course, focusing on how to design in a way that restores soil, grows food and creates spaces for human needs, and cares for Earth in ever-expanding zones. During our time in that class, we may spend some of the conversation on alternative economics and governance if the course uses Bill Mollison's designer's manual for the curriculum and discusses the material found in Chapter 14. Outside the PDC, many authors and practitioners have added to how to have an impact in our day-to-day lives as we apply design and systems thinking to where we live, work, and play. As more and more of us, myself included, live in cities with little or no access to land or control over our living space, while others dream of returning to the countryside, we each have so many ways to practice permaculture. That's where books like Building a Better World in Your Backyard co-authored by my guest Sean Clausen Coop, fill a gap between those spaces. He and Paul Wheaton worked together to provide a book that gives inspiration and action for all of us. Through their insightful analysis and long-running knowledge of permaculture, they share ways we can achieve more than the latest green trends. During our conversation today, Sean shares some of those ideas and how to transform our lives wherever we live. He also talks about his experience of co-authoring the book, and how you can get that book inside yourself, out onto the page, and into the world. Enjoy this conversation with Sean, and I'll join you again after. Then Sean, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, and then we can talk about your new book, co-authored with Paul Wheaton, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at the Bad Guys? Yeah, uh, thanks, Scott. So my background kind of comes in, I usually like to explain it in two major pieces. So the first major influence on my life was when I was 16, I started working at a summer camp and I had grown up in the city, hadn't really spent a lot of time outdoors in nature. And so this was kind of my first experience outdoor in nature and going on camping trips and things like that. And for me, this was hugely impactful, kind of seeing the natural world with new eyes and kind of gaining a passion for 
preserving it and enhancing it and caring for it. And then the second piece, which was another big part of who I am, is that I went to school for computer engineering. And I, I did this in particular because I felt that this was a way that I could use problem-solving skills to solve the world's problems and try to build a better world for people. And so I kind of pursued that for a very long time. Well, it felt like a very long time at least. And pursued that path with the hope of, of solving major problems. And it was sort of as I was just finishing off some of that stuff that I kind of stumbled upon permaculture and was having a lot of conversations with some friends who were very interested in food production and things like that. And I kind of saw permaculture, which was very new to me, as this idea of incorporating my design background in engineering and problem solving with my passion for building a better world and solving some of the big problems that we were facing. When did you discover permaculture? And if you've taken a permaculture design course, who did you study with? Yeah, I think I discovered permaculture, I'm going to say in 2013, roughly around there. A friend shared an article of some kind and kind of down the rabbit hole from there. Watched a lot of the content that Jeff Lawton was putting out at the time and uh, ended up taking a per permaculture design course with him, his, uh, his online course. Took that a few years ago and uh, yeah, learned a lot. Uh, certainly a lot of material in there and a lot of interesting people as well to kind of see their perspectives on the world. And I feel like that kind of gave me more tools to use in kind of design thinking and problem solving. So that's, that's that. Really allowing you to take all the skills you learned as a computer engineer and been putting into practice over the years and then combine it with the system of design and earth care into a, a new collaborative whole? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then how did you get to writing this book? The story behind the book, uh, you mentioned I co-authored this book with Paul Wheaton, and he founded permies.com. So I know some of your listeners will probably be familiar with his work already. Paul has his own podcast that I had listened to quite a bit. And in one of his episodes, he had shared with his co-host that he had wanted to write a book. And he just kind of felt like he was never going to get around to it. And he just said into the microphone, if anybody out there wants to help me put this book out into the world, let me know. And I kind of heard this and I, I happened to be in a space in my life where I had just left my previous job. I had kind of some time to, to kill. I had been planning to build a house the next spring. And I kind of thought, well, maybe I could do this. I had kind of thought I would maybe wait till I was, you know, close to retirement to write a book looking back on 30 years of what I had done. And I thought, well, this could be an interesting opportunity to, to publish a book earlier in my career and kind of use some of my ideas and uh, some of Paul's ideas at the same time. And so I, I, I was really nervous and I decided, well, okay, I will send an email because if he says no, I'm ne probably never going to meet the guy and I can just move on with my life. But if he says yes, then cool. What do I have to lose? So I emailed him and like the next day he responded back and said, yep, okay, when are we starting? And so I wrote a book and it, it kind of feels like a crazy story to me. Sometimes I still don't quite believe that it happened, 
But I think I really like to share this story with people because I like to share the idea that if we really, you know, just go out there and try and do things and what do you have to lose? Sometimes amazing things will happen. Sometimes, you know, you'll meet new people you never expected to meet or, or you don't know what'll happen. So that's how I ended up writing a book. And your story fits the thread of permaculture that we should be action oriented. That yes, we may take time to observe before we decide to interact, but ultimately we do need to take action. And that's one of the pieces about the book that stood out for me is that even in the title itself, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, instead of being angry at the bad guys, that this is an action-oriented approach, that we should get out there and, and be doing something. And we can start on the small scale, doing something to make a difference for ourselves and the people we care about. Yeah, absolutely. And it was kind of interesting, the timeline in which we were writing the book, the big climate protests that kind of started in Europe and kind of spread throughout the world, happened in the middle of us writing. So we were too far into writing the book to really comment on it because we wanted to get the book out into the world. But it is very interesting writing this book about very action-oriented approaches at the same time as these protests were happening. And something we talk about in the book, well, I should mention, especially given the, you know, the climate of today and what's all going on in, in the world, I'm I in no way wish to say that I am against protesting, peaceful protesting. It can be very effective and it certainly played a large role in shaping the world that we have today. What bothers me is when we stop there and we just say, okay, well, I signed a petition or I showed up to a protest and, you know, the government hasn't solved the climate emergency yet. Well, I guess I should go protest again instead of really, really taking a deep look at our own lives and, you know, what we're doing and how that is ultimately impacting things and how, you know, it's not just what I do at home, but it's what I buy and how that's produced and all of those sorts of things as well. So we wanted to have a book that was very focused on tangible things that you could do at home uh, that could have a large impact if a lot of people would do them. What you said reflects on a conversation I was having earlier today that even though I intend to go vote in the elections here in the United States, that isn't the end of my action. Voting doesn't stop me from still stocking my local little pantry with food for those in need or continuing to share interesting and sometimes radical literature in our free little libraries, that it's just not one action. We have lives that encompass all of this work. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And so when you were putting this book together, what were some of your favorite and exciting pieces to share with people to help them take this action where they live? I think when I, when I try and take the, the book as a whole and try and explain it rather quickly, uh, I think one of the most important concepts is the concept of voting with your wallet. And this isn't to say don't go vote, go and vote. But I think we get to vote at the ballot box every number of years, but we get to vote every day with our wallet and what we're spending our money on. And thinking really clearly about that, I have people in my life who love to go to climate protests and yet who with their money are regularly supporting the people who are causing harm to the climate. And it's very hard for these people to change what they're doing, you know, 
as a company, if you're still getting paid by the same people who are telling you to stop, there's very little motivation there to change. But if we find alternatives to vote for, or and my favorite alternative to vote for is actually I don't need any of these things, then we can really start to impact the way that businesses are going. Because if they're motivated by profits and we happen to do things that say, you know what, actually, we're not going to pay for you doing bad things. Eventually, they're going to have to do the things that we want just because they need the money. And so that's a, that's a big thing for me. And it affects a lot of different aspects of life. So, it, you know, it can affect something as simple as where do you buy your food or do you grow your food or larger questions uh, as well. So that's, that's definitely something that I think a lot about. The impacts our financial choices can have on the broader world? Yeah. So one of the chapters that we have in our book is focused a lot on, our book is kind of broken down into three main parts, and that is things that you can do, four main parts, sorry. Things that you can do regardless of where you live is the first one. The next one is things that you can do even if you live in an apartment. The next one is things kind of if you have a small small city lot. Uh, and then if you have like a large acreage. So we have uh, a lot of different areas there, but we have a chapter uh, about home energy usage and how big of an impact this can make and how a lot of the time when we talk about home energy usage, the stuff that we hear about is things like, oh, you should change your light bulbs or you should do this other minor tweak that saves a little bit of energy. But when you look at things from the perspective of where I live in Canada, uh, especially where I grew up in Manitoba, where it's really cold for a large part of the year, two thirds of our home energy usage is for heat and lighting is like maybe 8%. And in winter, light just heats your home. So really we need to take a, a more serious look at things like heating your home and some of the bigger items that can have a large impact. So we share in the book how Paul, my co-author, living one winter in Montana, ended up saving 87% off of his electric heat bill just by focusing on heating the person and the area around the person rather than heating the space in all of the house. And so that's the sort of change that can save people hundreds of dollars. And that's, that's a big focus in our book is to say, okay, Regardless of what your opinion on the climate emergency happens to be, these are still things that can save you money and help you potentially live a better life. So why not do them anyways? It's reminiscent of the political cartoon that made the rounds a couple years ago that talked about clean air and clean water and all these other outcomes we could have. And that if we want those things, why don't we work towards those anyway, regardless of what the problem may be that's resulting in dirty air or dirty water, because we want the most beautiful verdant world we can have. Yeah, I, I remember that cartoon. I really like that one. So from those four sections, do you have some action steps or activities that people could engage in that have those kinds of unexpected impacts that go beyond the usual advice of changing light bulbs or wearing a sweater at home during winter? Yeah. So kind of starting with the general strategies idea, uh, one of the things that we talk about is this idea of voting with your wallet, right? One of the things that we talk about is food. And we did a lot of thinking about where our food comes from and the impacts that it has while we were writing this book. And when you look at a lot of emissions charts, oftentimes 
the line for agriculture is something like 6% of total emissions. And this really makes it seem like agriculture is no big deal. But we started doing some further thinking about how a lot of the other lines might you know, actually contribute. And that can be something like food transportation, or that can be something like food processing facilities, or even something like the giant office building that the lawyers for the big food corporations have, because those are heated. That is part of the footprint of the food system. And we started realizing that although you'd probably need a multi-million dollar study to really confirm this, it's probably about a third of our overall footprint comes from the food that we eat. And so it really makes me think, oh, this is a major item for us to think about. And there are ways that we can get food with next to no carbon footprint or even sequestering carbon. And so I think that's a big thing to look into. And depending on where you live, you know, if you're in an apartment, you could look into trying to find some garden space in the community to work with, which obviously won't give you your whole diet's worth of food, but it's a start and it's something. And then finding farmers who you really believe in that what they're doing and how they're raising their food can be another big step to, to regenerating soil and drastically reducing our footprints. So that's, that's one item for you there. And we have a big chapter. I think it's the biggest chapter in the book, which is focused uh, specifically around the idea of growing double the food with one-tenth of the effort and comparing kind of a conventional garden with a permaculture garden and how I should specify after five years of work, you can get it to the point where it's double the food for one-tenth of the effort. So it's not like insta-better but long-term can be a, a huge benefit. And then something that we talk about, like I said, in the chapter on home, home energy usage, we kind of break down energy usage and then go into ways that we can try and dramatically cut our footprints. And, you know, we hear a lot about going solar or going on wind power. And I think that those are both less problematic than things like coal, for sure. So it's, it's good to move in that direction. But I think what's really important is to realize that all of these forms of energy production have problems. And so it is good to look at our overall energy usage and what do we actually need to use. And so what we propose in our book is the idea of trying to find a way to reduce your energy consumption by as much as 90%. And maybe for some of you, it'll be less. That's fine by as much as 90% and then look at what might be the best energy source for you. And so then instead of looking at like a 30 to $40,000 solar array, you might be looking at, you know, something that actually is quite affordable for you, even in the short term and can make a big difference in that way. And then you have a far lower footprint regardless of the energy source, but then that can make a big impact there as well taking the time to do what we might think of in the permaculture community as a needs and yields assessment of our life, and in those different areas beyond our food production or what we might grow in the backyard, but how we might take a whole-life approach to applying these ideas in order to have the most impact for the smallest change. Yeah, absolutely. And we, in our book, I'm not going to go into a lot of these things today, we try to hit a lot of different points and so in some ways, it's a very good introductory book if you, 
you know, if you have a friend that's kind of just getting into the environmentalism thing or just kind of getting into permaculture, we talk about things like gray water and, you know, nutrient processing and keeping nutrients in the landscape. We talk about, you know, there's the big food, not lawns movement, but there's people who say, forget it. I want a lawn anyways. And I would rather, if they're going to have a lawn, let's talk about ways for them to have a better lawn that uses less irrigation and less chemicals and things like that. So we have a a full chapter devoted just to how to, if you're going to have a lawn, how do you have a nice one? We talk about a lot of various things like that, kind of with the idea that you can take this look at your whole life and the decisions that you're making and think, okay, what is serving me and what isn't serving me and kind of make decisions to move forward on that. And I think an important thing to remember is that we're not going to change the world overnight. The world generally doesn't allow that. We're not going to change our whole life overnight most of the time either. But it's about looking at a few things and saying, okay, this month, what's my goal? What am I going to focus on? Maybe I'm going to think about my water usage, especially if you're in a drought-prone area. Maybe this month you're going to really focus on thinking about your electricity usage and where that's coming from and where that's going and how, how you're using that. And then over time, we get to a place that looks radically different from where we came from. But we don't have the same level of stress of trying to learn everything and change everything all at once. I'm reminded from my son's fourth grade school year, and something we've been working on is this idea of 1% better every day that as long as we take these small steps each day, that over a year it leads to exponential growth compared to trying to make a huge change all at once, and that our lives in one or three or five years can be radically different from the moment we find ourselves in when we decide to make this decision and without being very uncomfortable or in pain from the process. We might find a bit of discomfort because of how new it all is, but it doesn't disrupt what it is we're doing or throw our lives into chaos. We just continue to take one step after another and make what are ultimately huge changes with a little bit of consistently applied effort. I couldn't have said it better myself. That is great. I'm glad that that your son is learning these things. Another thing about this book that I, I just wanted to mention is there, there are things in this book, and we talk about kind of a scale, and that some things, some changes are too big to do at once. And we talk about how for some people, you can do a small thing. But we do include things in this book like alternative building techniques and things that, you know, a smaller percentage of the population might be interested in. Uh, but we talk about a technique for building a house that doesn't require heat, for example. And we talk about techniques for large scale, like, 10,000, 20,000 acre systems for how we might be able to start, how we might be able to manage that with permaculture. And it's not so much, especially that chapter, it's not so much that I have 20,000 acres or you have 20,000 acres or most of your listeners have 20,000 acres, but it kind of shows conceptually what we might accomplish with these techniques. And so I hope that it's the kind of book where someone can read it and find something for them, regardless of where they're at. And if there's something that feels too out there or too crazy, then leave it. That's maybe not time for you to consider that option yet, or maybe that one's not the best fit for you. 
And that's what I like about your book and some others like it that have emerged over the years. They give us this overview of all the options of what are possible with permaculture, and that if someone isn't necessarily able to implement a home that doesn't require heat from the ground up, they might be able to take some of those ideas and create techniques that require less heat in their home. Or, as I was learning from Alan Savory and Holistic Management, we need this vision of what's possible to figure out how to get there. But if we can't dream that big, we have no way to create those kinds of changes that are necessary to see that into the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's something else that we talk about in the book is how do we get there? And we've already kind of talked about, you know, making small changes every day and how that's important. But we also talk about financial strategies and how do we get to the point where we want to be? You know, some people love what they do for work and they're helping people every day and they could do that for the rest of their life. And that's great. But I think the stats are that something like 90% of people hate their jobs. And we spend like a third of our life, or maybe it's 20%, whatever, a huge pro, you know, percentage of our life at our jobs. And so I think this is an incredible thing to think about is how do we get to the point where we can spend our time and our energy doing the things that we love while also building a better world at the same time and helping other people. So we talk about you know, things like frugality and how that doesn't have to be sacrifice, how it can just be creative problem solving. Uh, but we talk about, you know, different ways of living, different ways of thinking about our finances, different ways of saving, and all of those can kind of impact long-term where we're going and how we get there. And it's a lot easier to support ourselves if we can get our, you know, our annual living budget to something like $500 a month instead of like $5,000 a month, obviously depending on where you are and all sorts of things like that. But that was something that I was very excited about was trying to provide some tools for people to think about how to get themselves to where they wanted to be. And it was a really valuable exercise that I encountered a few years ago was this idea of what is the absolute minimum you need to live? You know, if you take all your bills and everything that you have and once you get rid of entertainment and all the other things that are vital to living a rich life, but that we don't necessarily need to pursue in the way that we are, what is the bare minimum number to cover our housing, our energy use, our food budget, and so on? And once I did that, I was really surprised by how small that number was compared to what the Western lifestyle made it seem to be that I needed to have once I filled in my life with everything else. And it, it really changed my ability to make decisions about what am I going to do and is what I'm doing important enough to spend this money relative to the goals I'm trying to achieve. And very often I found there were lots of alternatives that I could engage in that were just as fulfilling and allowed me to live much closer to that minimum number. Uh, and I think that something you said there is, is really key and that's looking for your goals, right? Not my goals for what your life looks like. And that's something that we tried to be very careful of in this book is to say, we're not trying to shame you into living a simpler life. We're not trying to force you into that or feel like you have to live a certain way. Everyone's going to be willing to go so far. And if I happen to go twice as far as you, that's okay. You know, you might decide to reduce your, your budget by 10%, save 10% more money. And then like a year later, realize, hey, that was pretty easy. I'm going to save 20%. 
And suddenly you're looking at your retirement age, you know, going down, down, down and, and things like that. So it doesn't have to be this overnight conversion of, well, I'm just going to save everything now. But it's about working with your goals and your comfort levels and finding things that are equally fulfilling or maybe even more fulfilling than the things that we're currently investing our lives in. There's this metaphor that I ran across that I like when I think about these places where each of us are in our lives, is that ideally, we're all going to be riding the bus together. But where everyone arrives at their own destination is going to be different for each of us. But we can be supportive and help one another on the journey. If I need to get off early because I still need a car because of traveling long distances regularly, then that's where my stop is for that part of the trip. But if you're going to go further and go carless and only walk or ride a bike, that I can be there and support you until our paths depart. Absolutely. And that's something that we talk about too, is rather than saying, okay, we all need to do without having a car, how can we try and work towards a life where we just don't want to have a car? And that won't be for everyone. You know, I, I have a car. I used to have a job that I, I used to have to drive up to three hours sometimes for. That was really important was being able to get out there. And that brought me a lot of meaning in my life. So, you know, it's not that for everyone, but I think as a whole, as a society, we can do a lot more work in working towards that, that goal. And coincidentally, I think maybe one of the positives that came out of 2020 here is that we are starting to realize that maybe you don't need to drive across city to go to an office to work. You know, if you have an office job, you can often do a lot of that stuff from home and that saves a lot of driving. So that's, you know, the carbon footprint is less, but also you're not spending the money on the vehicle and you're not spending the time on the road. So that I think is one, one lesson that a lot of people have learned this year. Now, granted, that's not necessarily easy for everyone. I understand like if you have kids running about the house, that can make work challenge, but has certainly been a, a big impact for a lot of people, I think. I have a friend who works in the IT department of a local university, and they're looking at, even though they had made a large investment in their IT infrastructure, which can be very expensive for small businesses, to get all the technology together to not have to be in a physical location, but they're looking now at what buildings do they need to keep in operation, and how is this going to impact what the university looks like in years to come, and what can they save overall by not operating all these physical spaces? and are now considering those cost versus benefit analysis. And I found that just fascinating to hear how such a large entity like this has changed their outlook over the last nine months or so. And we haven't even seen the end of all of the changes, right? It, it, certainly a lot of things will change. And I think kind of going back to this book, you know, there's been a lot of frustration for a lot of people. You know, our lives are all kind of different than they were nine months ago to varying levels. Mine hasn't changed that much, but for some people it's changed a lot. And I think we've seen a big uptick in people interested in gardening and growing their own food and some of the resiliency that comes along with that. And so I think that's another benefit is more and more people are looking at this, looking at how can we be more resilient overall to some of these bigger problems occurring. And my hope is that, yeah, people are using this time as productively as they can. And I'd like to transition us a bit away from the content of the book and to what you went through as a co-author for people who might be interested in writing a book with somebody else. But before we do that, can you tell us where people can find the book? 
Yeah, if you go to buildingabetterworldbook.com, actually, if you go to buildingabetterworldbook.com slash Scott, then I will know that you're one of Scott's fans. And then I can, you know, thank Scott a lot if you end up buying the book. But also, um, I have a short podcast series that I put out specifically going through, I think it's 26 episodes long, specifically going through the concepts of the book. Uh, so if you're interested in that, it's at the same website, buildingabetterworldbook.com slash Scott. We were also talking about giving away a couple copies of your book. So for anyone interested in receiving a copy of Building a Better World in Your Backyard by Sean and Paul, then send me an email, show at permaculturepodcast.com, and include the subject, Building a Better World, and I'll select a couple of winners at the end of October and let Sean know so he can send it out to you. So then from here, Sean, could you share with us what this process was like to co-author this book for anyone interested in writing a book, but as Paul had said, wasn't sure they would ever get around to it so that you can share this work with other people who are interested in getting their thoughts and ideas out into the world? Yeah, certainly. I, I really... Truly, I'm, I'm one of the big proponents of saying that everyone has a book in them. And that's not my saying. I can't remember whose it is. But I, I do believe that. And I think everyone has something to share with the world. And with this specific book, uh, the way that it ended up working is because Paul already had a very large following and a lot of material put out over the many years that he's been doing his work, a lot of what we did was kind of taking the ideas that he's already put out there and mashing them into a book. And so it, at first it seemed like, oh, most of it's already done. We just need to do some minor tweaking. But then it turns out that no, there is a lot of work that goes into making a book. And especially, you know, you can't just take random posts that were made on a forum and just magically turn them into a book. It does take actually quite a lot amount of work to make it fit together and flow reasonably. So because Paul had all of this expertise, we agreed early on in our relationship that we would write the book mostly from Paul's perspective. And so that, that was an interesting thing for me was to learn how to write from Paul's perspective without being Paul. But certainly there's other ways of writing a book and certainly ways where you could have both people, both voices a little bit more prominent. And that would be something where you'd have to work depends. I think it depends a lot on the person and who you're writing with and on yourself. And so some people are very detail oriented and they want to be getting in there, dealing with the commas, you know, dealing with these minor tweaks. And some people are larger trajectory trying to just figure out, okay, what are the points we want to convey? How do we do that? Well, and so I ended up doing a lot of the work of, the fine points and working with our graphic designers and our layout people uh, and stuff like that and putting those aspects of the book together and the audiobook recorder talking to him as well. Uh, so that, that was something that required quite a bit of time, but can be a good thing. And overall, I learned a lot throughout the process of writing a book and I'm really glad I did it. I would encourage if you're thinking about writing a book, you know, Maybe you don't have to go all in and have it be the, the main thing you're working on for the next two years, like it was for me, but maybe it's something you do in your spare time. And maybe it's, you know, something that 10 years from now will, will read your book. And it doesn't have to be a permaculture book. It can be something else too. There's value in other books too. With all this emergent technology that we can use to collaborate, 
Did you spend time in person with Paul talking about all this? Or were you sharing this information through collaborative documents, phone calls, and using online meetings? Yeah, so I I had actually never met Paul in person until I went to his house after the books were printed to do some signing together. And that was the first time that I had actually met him in person. But we talked anywhere from two to 10 times a week over the internet using recording software and using online meeting software. And then using Google Drive was a big big help for us, just being able to both work on the same document at the same time. And, you know, there's lots of other solutions if you're not into Google or, or don't like that particular piece of software. But yeah, that was one of the neatest things was that I was able to work on this project with someone I had never met in person and worked together for almost two years before I met them. And I felt like there was never a time during that stretch where I felt like being together in person was more important. It seemed like we were always able to get the work done. But a, a large part of that is is making the commitment. And, and for us, it was very important to prioritize getting this project done. So for some people, if it's more of a side thing, if you're working with a co-author, that can sometimes be difficult to coordinate. Or if one of you has a job, you know, that can affect times a day and things like that and make things more complicated, but definitely played a large, a large factor in the creation of this book. And so I, I'm grateful for some of those tools and what they've, what they've done for us in terms of allowing us to share ideas with the world. And do you have any other thoughts, suggestions, or advice for anyone who wants to go down this road? Yeah. I mean, I have lots of ideas for sure. Uh, I think if you're thinking about it, the most important step in any project, whether it's a book or something else, is that at some point you have to start and just start, like open up a blank document and start typing ideas or an outline or whatever works for you. Maybe you want to just record in dictation software is so good now. It's still not great, but it's so good compared to where it used to be. You can just speak your book and have it transcribed and then, you know, edit it from there. There's a lot of different ways to do it. If, you know, if you, if you struggle with typing, maybe you talk. If you struggle with talking, maybe you type. If you struggle with coming up with ideas on your own, maybe you have a conversation with a friend and record that and find that you actually just spoke four chapters worth of content to your friend and you can put that right in. So lots of different ways to go about it. But I think my number one tip, if you're thinking about taking on a project, is start. Because a lot of people don't. And with everything you've shared with us today, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, just thinking about the state of the world and where things are going. I hope that you're well and that you can look at the world and try and find ways every day to, to make the world a little bit of a better place for yourself and for others. And if all of us do that, it's going to get somewhere pretty quickly. Thank you for that, Sean, and for joining me for this episode of the Permaculture Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And that was Sean Clausen Coop. Find out more about him, his book, and the accompanying podcast series at buildingabetterworldbook.com slash scott. As we shared in the middle of the interview, we have several copies of his book to give away. If you'd like to enter this giveaway, send an email to show at the permaculturepodcast.com and include Building a Better World 
in the subject line. Stepping away from this interview and looking through the book, I think this is a great introduction to the concepts of permaculture and turning our energy into steps we can take each day to achieve our goals. And in doing so, we can practice David Holmgren's first principle of permaculture, observe and interact, each day by deeply considering our place and space and making small, meaningful, consistent changes. It's also a good book to introduce others to the ideas of permaculture. It's going on my gift list for friends and family wondering what this permaculture thing is all about. But those are just my thoughts. After hearing this conversation with Sean, and especially if you've read the book already, what do you think? How will you use what you've learned to change your permaculture practices and designs? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you enjoy this episode or any others in the archives, join the Permaculture Podcast community on Patreon at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. I'm also here to help you with your permaculture journey, whether that's deciding your next steps, if you're looking for someone to bounce ideas off of for your next project, or to refine your permaculture design. You can schedule a one-on-one consultation or casual conversation at calendly.com slash permaculture. Until the next time, build a better world in your own backyard while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.